0: Hi, this is Sonny Perdue, Secretary of Agriculture at USDA. And I know it's a little anxious when we see those barren store shelves and grocery shelves there, but I want to assure you that our food supply chain is sound, it's healthy, people are on the job stocking those stores, processing that food. Our inspectors are safely guarding that food and inspecting them day by day. You can count on it. Your food's gonna be there, but just let me remind you, use what you need. It's like a buffet. Don't take more than you use in a, in a week or two, and don't try to hoard so your neighbors and other communities can have what they need. Thank you. You're gonna have enough. That was Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, speaking from the White House. In addition to the global public health threat, the effects of coronavirus pandemic has disrupted vital sectors of the economy. What about our food supply chains? Is food in short supply? Are our supply chain systems simply adapting to the new reality in how we deliver and access food? Joining me is Dan Thompson from Iowa State University, an expert in agribusiness and in food production. And I'm Jim Lowe from the University of Illinois, and this is The Round Bar. Thanks for joining me, Dan. And I think we ought to start this conversation today with: Are we running out of food?
1: <laughs> well, no, I don't think we're we're completely running out of food. I think we're just, you know, we're really good at producing it. We just stink at distributing it. Um, that's the the bottom line. And and um, as we have changed our tastes, as we've changed our travel habits, our dining habits, we're just seeing a change in in the types of food that people are wanting to access so there's not a shortage it's there we just uh we got it out to distribution and to cisco and going to quick service restaurants and now everybody wants to buy it at the grocery store so we're trying to figure out how to get it back there and and get it to people's homes
0: yeah i think the interesting bit right uh you you have a good relationship with the mcdonald's and i saw that their sales in the in march were down 22 percent even though they're still open, right? So supposedly they're open because they've got uh, drive through up, but they're down 22%. So if, if McDonald's is down, that must mean we're all eating very differently.
1: Yeah, and and you know that, that whenever you talk about sustainability or you talk about the food supply chain, we take animals and we break them into the parts that consumers want. And until we had this disruption with COVID, and people changing the way that they interact in public and and where they eat. um, It really changed the cuts, it changed the process, and it changed what people want.
0: Yeah, so give me some examples of that, Dan. Because on the beef side, so on the pork side, right? Uh, bacon was the most commonly served thing on menus, and we had bacon prices, belly prices, so green belly prices, so uncared belly prices that were in the two dollar a pound range here, not that long ago. And today they're forty one cents or something. So as we've gone away from putting bacon on every sandwich known to mankind and then every other thing at, at restaurants, right? When we've come home. We apparently don't need as much bacon at home. But what's that mean on the beef side? Because beef prices are just terrible today. I mean, farm gate price for beef is just terrible today. So what's that meant on the beef side?
1: Yeah. So the, so the first thing that happened with COVID is it changed. People stopped going out to eat. And so needing the steaks for the white tablecloth restaurants and, and things that that we serve in restaurants decreased. And what really shot up was our, our want or our dependence on hamburgers. So then we bought all the hamburger out of the stores and people started to panic. Well, we still had plenty of hamburger. The problem was it was going to quick service restaurants and going out to Cisco. And and remember, the other one that's huge is that our school lunches shut down. And so we already had this stuff distributed. And now we spend the time bringing it back off the trucks and coming back to the grocery stores to get it to where people want it. It's a real simple thing. It seems really confusing, but... You know, we were sending it to where everybody was going to be and we had plans for it and then they weren't there. So now it's like, OK, now how do we get it to get it back to the place where people are going to go and, and and need it? And so we're bringing it back to the grocery store. So it, it changed our where we're eating. It changed what we're eating. And just so many things go with hamburger. Um, you know, that's what people were wanting.
0: So, how does that change packaging, right? So, as I think about it, if I'm selling to Cisco, I'm probably going to sell either pre-made patties, right, or chubs, big chubs, so 20, 30, 40-pound chubs, instead of selling 2-pound uh, packages or 1-pound packages, right? So, what's how long? You work in the meat business a lot. What's the time... Like from the time I take a cow to the plant, it walks out of the feed yard and it shows up at at the restaurant or it shows up in the grocery store. Is that two days or six weeks or like, how long does that chain last?
1: It's, it's, you know, within a week to 10 days. And, um, and so it's a fresh product going out the door and, and, and we're then getting it to distributors and things to that nature. But the packaging um, is going to change, and then what may be happening is is some of the bigger packages is going are going out to some of the butcher shops to be broken down into smaller packages that are people coming in buying one two pounds of, of hamburger at a time, um, you know. So I I think that that we're going to see people that are going to they're going to want smaller quantities at a time they want it broken down into packages that are usable so when i take it out i can and use it at one time and we're going to see less of the bulk stuff going out for the the time being so it's going to increase packaging it's probably going to lengthen the time a little bit of getting it there as we redistribute but other than that it's it's already shifting but then there's been other you know once once we got through that then we have on the other end of it since we aren't getting the premiums for the steaks and the the, the things like that now our beef beef prices drop on the other end and so another potential pitfall is cattle feeders are holding on to cattle longer and so they're they're holding those cattle uh they want to sell them in anticipation that the prices might go up So we're getting a little bit of it. We're pretty current right now with our marketings, but there's a chance if people start holding hogs or holding cattle back that we wouldn't be very current, which would not be good for prices, Um, Because especially if we're holding cattle back, waiting for a better better price, and all of a sudden one of our packing plants goes down because of workers getting COVID, we could see a, a really black day. Um, of holding all these cattle and, and having prices go even lower. So, so people need to keep eating it. We need to get it distributed and we need to keep the marketings, no matter how hard it hurts right now, we need to keep them current so that when we come out of this, we, we make money on the back end.
0: Yeah, so what's going on? So I've seen a little bit in the news, right? So I spent a lot of time looking at the pig business. We've got a plant down this week, and Tyson plant in Columbus Junction closed because of COVID. And rumor on the street, and a couple of plants in Canada, pork plants in Canada are down for a week or two because of coronavirus issues. And now we've got some discussions that they're thinning out people in plants to try to slow down lines, and then have to slow down line speed on the cut side so that they have less risk of coronavirus and that's all fantastic but that's really going to back up our pig business what's going on i've seen a little bit on the cattle side what's happening in the cattle business i thought i saw something in pennsylvania or, or what's going on there
1: we had one plant that went down in in pennsylvania that closed for a week and then we just had um we have we have slowed down our chain speed a little bit um we're doing things like taking temperatures of the workers as they come in in the morning. And if they're running the fever, they're sent home, just pretty typical biosecurity type things. We're just not used to being the pig or the cow, right? Um, we're, we're used to population medicine. We're just not used to being the one that gets sick. And so, so now we're, we're sending people home and we're spreading things out. But, uh, I just got a notification last night of, of one of our major packing plants that, that is starting to have, see workers with COVID positive cases. So I think that everything we can do to keep those plants open, uh, keep them running is going to be even at, at a decreased speed of the chain um, because of decreased worker and increased social distancing. I think we're gonna, we need it so we can stay as current as possible.
0: But I don't think we have to worry about, right? I mean, like Joe or Joe Bob consumer here, we, we got a lot of meat in the supply. We're we're wash in red meat right now, and we're washing chicken as well. So, I mean, it's not like if we slow down a few plants, that impact's really going to be at the live side or the producer side and probably not at the consumer side. It looks to me like, at least in the pig business, we got way more pigs and we've got slaughter capacity. And so we've got this... Difference between carcass value and live animal value—that's pretty extreme right now. I, is that the same thing that's happening in beef? I mean, my cursory looks—it as it is.
1: Absolutely, we—you know—you you see this, this, and and the thing we have to remember is that it's nobody's fault. Uh, <laughs> that's what we get. This point where uh, in the beef industry, where the cow calf man's p- pointing at the feedlot, and the feedlot op- operator's pointing at the packer. And, and nobody wanted to have COVID <laughs> and nobody wanted to see this this change and and I think that that's something that's really important. The consumer needs to understand what an unbelievable system we have and how safe our food is and how we can redistribute and, and repackage and get it to them in and, and really not miss a beat understanding that we have farmers and ranchers that are just the reason they aren't mad of the situation, they're scared of losing their business, and and that there's a big difference in in that in the tone of why aren't they sharing these profits back with me if meat's being sold at a high rate, and here I am uh, taking a, a financial bloodbath, um, and I don't know that my farm's going to survive.
0: Yeah, I, the thing I found interesting years ago when we were starting to do some retail work was, and this was pork chops that they wanted to sell two pork chops for three seventy nine or whatever it was at the time, and it kind of didn't depend on what the price of the meat was coming in. They the consumer was willing to pay three seventy nine for two for two portions or whatever the magic number was. And so we tend to think about, right, well, everybody's making a killing right now because we've made way too many pigs and calves and chickens for what the market's going to bear. But the flip side comes around when we're not producing nearly enough. And, and you know, when we had uh, $100 a hundred dollars, a hundred dollars a pound or a dollar a pound, hundred dollars, a hundred dollars a pound live pigs uh, in, in 2014, you went to the grocery well guess what pork chops were still 379 and so i think we forget that we we live in a commodity business on the farm um, in a fixed with a fixed number of hooks and so the the price at the packing plant so the price goes up and down depending upon availability but yet we want to sell things at a fairly fixed price cuz we don't want to change that to our consumers and so i think in ag right it would be really helpful if we started to understand that chain a bit more
1: yeah and i think you're going to see I think you're going to see in the beef industry, like you've seen in the pork industry, we're going to see more integration. Um, This is going to, this, these big dips and swings where one side's making money and the other one's not. I think it's going to, I think you're either going to see feedlots uh, go together and build a packing plant or a packing plant. uh, The packing plants are going to figure out ways to, to do some, some, uh, price insurance or something to share profits when one side's making money, the other, they share back and, and vice versa. I think you're going to, you're going to see some of those, uh, strategic partnerships and that, you know, and you know what that meant sometimes to, to our smaller farmer, right?
0: Yeah. that That's really been a huge change in the pig business, right? Is we virtually aligned. We haven't vertically aligned with the chicken guys, but we certainly have virtually aligned. And the good is, is that, I think it was the end of last week uh, most of the producers are still getting paid about 65 cents a pound for the carcasses uh, at the time of harvest and the futures of the board said it was 40 cents a pound so that was an interesting discordance because we're getting paid off of uh, virtual alignment there we're getting paid off a carcass price the problem is is that uh, you don't get the upside and it takes size and scale to integrate so that alignment is good because it takes the bumps out, but it's also rough because uh, smaller producers have really taken a, a, a knock in that, in that arrangement because they can't always meet the specifications of that more aligned chain requires.
1: And if they, and if if they really want to, I, I think some of the smaller producers, they just need to see that coming. And, you know, 10, 2,000 head feedlots equals a 20,000 head yard. And and doing some strategic alignments within our rural communities, uh, especially on marketing, could be pretty important.
0: And we've seen that in the pig business, right? You've seen these three or four big swine practices that are kind of maybe not swine veterinary practices anymore, but really management companies because they've gone in and managed pigs for their clients and a, a lot of them to pool those resources to compete. So I think there are some upsides there, but maybe if we twist the conversation a little bit into the vegetable business, which is interesting to me because that one's really kind of A bunch of small growers get a line through packers and if you've seen the pictures they're throwing stuff out i think the dairy business is not that much different they're dumping milk how much food waste do we think is going on today Have we increased it with this change in the deal does integration help in the in the dairy side integration would say it's made it worse because of where they're at there's some number that one in nine americans is food insecure is that food waste contributing to that. What do we, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, it's a really interesting area to me because I think you and I have in this business to feed people uh, and make sure that people had food to eat. And yet what's happened with this is, is we've gone all these other permutations of this outbreak.
1: Yeah, I think, well, the, the big thing is, you know, yeah, we, we hear people, you know, whether it's liquid eggs uh, being overproduced right now or, because we don't need them in cake batters we're not selling cake batters you know just uh egg production milk production um you know there's there's a lot of examples of of how tastes how uh, alternative products and that have changed the landscapes of of these industries and the one thing we have to remember is that when we're trying to you know everybody's trying to to get to this point of, of food security. And 14.5% of Americans suffer from food insecurity, meaning they, do not, they are not able to put food on the table to, su- to sustain their family. The one thing that we measure poverty on in our country is the cost to feed people. And poverty is set has been set since 1963 based on the price of food and and inflation over the years. And so if you have a household household full of four people and that household makes twenty-five thousand dollars or less, that's considered a, a a poverty home. And and so if we do things in the industry that increase the price of food without increasing wages or without increasing the uh amount of money that people make, we then Increase poverty, and as we've discussed, you know, we didn't sign up to feed the rich and the famous. We signed up to to feed our neighbors, and and this this idea of of you know what has been really funny to me, Jim, during this this COVID outbreak is I really don't see I see people now coming back to the realization of. You know, we have great, wholesome, safe, nutritious food animal products. I don't see people running around trying to find the, the tofu or the, the fake meat or the alternative protein or whatever you want to call it. They're like, give me some hamburger. Give me some sausage and give me some whole eggs. I'm going to have hard-boiled eggs. They're going back to things that are comfortable, things they know are right. They know that if I sit down and I give Junior a hamburger, Junior's going to get the protein, the energy, the vitamins, the minerals, a well balanced diet. And, and, um, that's a long, you really, you, you ripped the scab off of it when you asked me that question. I knew you knew you, you were going to. But, uh, but, uh, you know, we just, it's, it's a great, great opportunity for everybody to get back to their roots.
0: Yeah. I think it's, uh, It's always shocking to me and in a bad way, not shocking in a good way, shocking in a bad way, that number of people that rely on food banks to continue to get food. And you just hear these stories now, we're pouring milk down the drain and throwing out eggs and, uh, you know, there's, I don't know, a quarter of a million pounds of beef that can't get sold today because it's premium and supposed to go to a restaurant and you hear them throwing away vegetables and everything else. How do we solve that? I mean, can we do anything in ag to fix that? I mean, I think that's a really vex it's, it's it's bothersome to me. Look at us throwing out stuff that's perfectly good food. You know, grew up in a house, you ate, cleaned up your plate and you didn't throw stuff away. And, and I think most of us did. And now we're in this spot that we're wealthy and we get rid of stuff and we're plowing zucchini under the ground because we can't get it in the supply chain. Can, can we fix that? I mean, what's the best model?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny to me. We live in a country where we have fourteen percent food insecurity and thirty-four percent obesity, and 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 so it it really is this this social inequality. Okay, so so let's go back to the restaurant model, and and I'll just start real quick because the restaurants don't feed the poor. Restaurants feed the rich. Even the quick service restaurants. I'm sorry, whether it's regardless of which one it is, they they feed people who can afford to have someone else plan the meal, cook the meal and do the dishes. They're selling a service. They call them a quick service. So they call them restaurants. They don't call them, you know, your kitchen. And so it, it and they don't take food stamps at restaurants. So when they come out and make outlandish uh, claims on the, the food that they're serving, whether it's antibiotic free, hormone free, whatever it is. Okay or make decisions they're making decisions for people who have money and and when they waste food out the back of the restaurant they can do so because they're charging x number of dollars now when we look at grocery stores grocery stores have um you know they take food stamps and and they are are the ones that that are feeding the masses all people So and then you back it up one step further to the to the overproduction. And and again, it goes back to we do a great job of producing. We do a terrible job of distributing and and getting back to that understanding of these uh, food deserts within urban areas, uh, places where we can't get vegetables and 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 that. And I think the one way we change it. And we've done it the wrong way in agriculture. We've taken it on in agriculture as this is our problem, right? That we have to f- fix it and we have to, to solve it. And really, this is a, this is a societal problem. This is an if-you-eat problem. And, and so when I look at food insecurity numbers, and I want to make sure that we keep food affordable, we keep food safe, and we keep it in places where people can have access to it, I'm partnering with the NAACP. I'm partnering with the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. I'm going to these mayors and to, to governors of urban areas because that's where food insecurity occurs at the same rate in in the country as it does in an urban area. Um, but it the the and so it's it's not necessarily I, so I misspoke a little bit. It's not necessarily that that in champaign illinois is has higher food insecurity than than clearfield iowa okay a town of 300 people it's all about 14 and percent but our highest risk of food insecurity in this country are single women with children 35 percent food insecurity uh, african americans and, and hispanic americans uh, run higher than than caucasians and so When we start to think about food distribution and that, we need to be working on the ground with our with the people outside of agriculture, including the Teamsters, including the you know, when we start to get into issues of how we get this distribution system rolling, it's going to be it's going to take a lot of different groups working together. And what agriculture has to do is we have to remember it's kind of like when I started working with McDonald's. You know, they said, you know, all we really want to do is sell hamburgers and french fries. Okay, that's that's our job. And in agriculture, our job is to raise pigs, slaughter pigs, and provide a safe, wholesome product. From that point on, we really need to get people that involved in this country to help us get this distribution system worked out.
0: Well, Dan, I think that's... Uh that's a different pitch for us, right? I mean, in an ag, we just think about how do we make more and make it cheap. And yet now we really got to say, how do we think bigger? And maybe COVID will help us bring that around the corner. Maybe just as a wrap up. I mean, we've got this huge federal stimulus bill coming down the pike and it sounds like we're going to come up with another things with T's after it today. Uh, I can't comprehend a billion, so I don't even understand the idea of a trillion. And do you think it's going to have any impact on that distribution? Are we going to do anything fundamentally different? Are we just going to keep doing what we're doing wrong with all this money flooding into the food system?
1: <laughs> well, when, whenever government gets involved, there's always a risk of it really getting screwed up. Um, and I, I, I hate to say it that way, but, but uh, you know, the, the old saying of, of good people don't need laws and bad people break them. Uh, you're going to have people that take advantage of the system with this stimulus package and, and, and so be it. I think at the end of the day, fundamentally what we have found is that there's a lot more, there's 99% good and 1% bad. And we can't, we can't police the bad apples. We just have to keep promoting the the good people, the good neighbors. We have to, uh, you know, I think one thing is, is that this COVID has taught us that there is no discrimination uh, that a virus does not discriminate against anybody for any reason, and and I kind of in the thought process of oxygen, water, food, <laughs> those types of things. Those are those are those are things we have to provide for each other, and that's going to be the that is going to be the if if agriculture wants to come through, riding on their white horse. And or in their bibbed overalls, whatever, of going back to being the, the person that, that produces vegetables and meat and, and dairy for their neighbors, it, this is the time for us to, to realign and rethink of our values. And I always just sit in meetings with this. Is, it's time for us to become neighbors again.
0: Dan, I think that's a great way to end, and thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening and we'd love to hear from you too. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at the round barn one, or you can email us at the round barn at vetmed.illinois.edu. We may even share your comments on our next show. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing. We also offer a wide range of learning opportunities for folks who work with livestock and veterinarians. They're available online at online.vetmed.illinois.edu. Thanks.